0: Welcome to The Perspectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom.
1: And I'm Raymond Seelove. Yep, we have
0: my father coming on for another uh, special three-person episode of The Perspectrum. Uh, We're going to start out by talking about the uh, vaccine... And the science behind it, which is wonderful, because for those of you that have heard my uh, previous episodes with my father on it, he is a retired professor of anatomy and physiology. So he's going to discuss some of the science behind the vaccine. Uh, and then we are going to spend some time discussing the a, a specific strategy that some leftists on YouTube are uh Uh, proposing for how to force a vote on medicare for all in the house of representatives and then we're going to end the pod by talking about some of joe biden's cabinet picks and specifically how they could potentially affect climate policy so i'm really excited about this episode but before we get started with that michael give us an update on the COVID numbers so uh, worldwide uh, we've had a total of
2: 78.3 million cases which is up from 73.8 million cases seven days ago, which is a uh, 4.5 million case increase in one week, um, or 6.1% increase in total cases. Um, So far, 1.72 million people in the world have died, which is up from 1.64 million last week, uh, which is a 4.9% increase, or about 80,000 new deaths in one week. And in total, that's about 4.9 thousand deaths per day worldwide. Uh, In the US, uh, we've had a total of 18.6 million cases, which is up from 17.2 million seven days ago, which is uh, 1.4 million new cases in a week, or about an 8.1% increase in total cases. Uh, That means that in the last seven days, the US has averaged over 200,000 new cases per day. So far, 330,000 people have died from COVID in the U.S., which is up from 311,000 seven days ago, which is 19,000 new deaths um, in just seven days. Um, Yeah, and that's a 6.1% increase in total deaths in one week, or about 2,700 dead dead per day uh, from COVID.
0: So one of the things that you might notice about the following interview about vaccines is that Michael's voice is going to be uh, noticeably absent from it. And that is because we actually recorded this entire episode uh, last night and we had a great interview and a great discussion about vaccines. And due to some type of technical difficulty, that entire segment just got deleted. So my father and I are actually redoing that interview, uh, unfortunately, without Michael, um, so that we can still discuss the vaccine. But Michael will be present for the episode following that. So as soon as it gets to Tips for Good, Michael will be back. But first...
1: And and Michael did hear the previous version of this discussion, so he's not left out.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, And there are some questions that he asked that I'm probably going to try to ask as well if I remember them. you should ask them in his voice i mean i think he and i have similar voices no no <laughs> all right um so before we get started talking about the science i want to briefly address the politics of it so there's been some controversy surrounding the fact that there have been some prominent republicans that have been downplaying the covid-19 virus throughout the course of the pandemic uh, jumping queue and getting vaccines early. Specifically, uh, two of the senators that people were pissed off about were Lindsey Graham and Marco Rubio. So, uh, out of curiosity, what are what are your thoughts on this, Dad?
1: So you know, I I guess I'm of two minds about it. Um, on the one hand, um, these are people who have done a lot of damage um, in. Uh, denial that there's a problem in the first place and they are responsible in many ways for some of the vaccine resistance that seems to be going on now so to have them actually get the vaccine could have a symbolic um significance for their followers who've been misled by them all along yeah and so that's it it's important to correct the misinformation that they're responsible for. And, you know, so one, instead of thinking of it as them jumping the queue, one might think of it as them stepping forward and being leaders about this for yeah. once. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, fuck those guys. <laughs> why why do they get to be protected when they've been pretending that it's not a problem all along? It's, yeah. uh, you know, it it feels... It feels wrong. Probably the first of those responses is the correct one to have, yeah. and the second one is the one that I'm I'm really fighting, yeah, not to feel that way because yeah. it's it's not the right way to feel about it.
0: Well, I I think it's okay to feel that way. I mean, I I'm pretty sure that both Marco Rubio and Lindsey Graham has been have been asshats on our podcast. I think Lindsey Graham has actually made the cut more than once, um, but. At the end of the day, what's important is getting a handle on this pandemic. And, you know, there, there definitely are some people on the left that are anti-vaccine. And that is a huge problem. Uh, but most of the conspiratorial stuff that I've been seeing uh, online have been primarily from the right. Has been primarily from the right. Uh, I actually have people that I went to high school with all over my facebook feed saying i'm not getting a vaccine i'm not letting them put a microchip into my body which is funny because you already walk around with a phone that has a microchip on it
1: so um yeah the phones um are these people also dumping their facebook account um you
0: know, well, it, no, because they're posting it on Facebook. So, <laughs> like, if you care about privacy, then why but, are you on Facebook?
1: I, that, that, <laughs> that's kind of my point. You know, if if you're finding this conspiratorial crap on Facebook, uh, there's a yeah, there's a disconnect there somewhere. Yeah. So, first
0: off, that notion is just ridiculous. And if some if, if some people that are Trump, Trump sycophants take a vaccine and that convinces a few conspiratorial individuals to also take the vaccine when it becomes available, then I would say that's a good thing. So I think that I would also come down on the side of like, yes, fuck those guys for all of the damage that they did. Uh, they should not be senators. Lindsey Graham should not have won re-election And the next time Marco Rubio is on the ballot, like he should vote, he should be voted against. He should lose his position. But at the end of the day, we need to get to at least 70% of the population taking that vaccine. And if this helps us achieve that goal, then whatever.
1: Yes, but that goal is a pretty long way off before that much vaccine is actually available and so another way of looking at this is vaccine denial is really not an issue vaccine refusal is not an issue right now yeah because there's not enough vaccine to go around for the people who are willing to get it so um If there are people who don't want to get a vaccine right now, fine. Don't try to force people to get vaccines when there aren't enough for everybody anyway. The whole vaccine refusal issue won't become a problem until there are there's lots of vaccine available.
0: I understand that. But at the same time, we are looking at. I'm still thinking of this in terms of a long-term strategy. So we want to get
1: these people
0: excited about potentially taking the vaccine.
1: So right now, there's the short-term strategy of trying to get vaccines into the people who are uh, most at risk and most at risk of spreading to other people. And that is the the healthcare workers that are actually taking care of infected people. Um, and, uh, senators don't qualify. No, that's true. But at the
0: same time, if they take it now, if the, if it's one dose now that leads to like, even like, like 10,000 more people taking it than would have originally later down the line, I would say that's worth it.
1: So the one person who should not be getting vaccinated now, uh, is Donald Trump. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And the reason Donald Trump should not get vaccinated um, is is not about uh, anything related to politics or leadership or or PR. It's entirely about science. Yeah. Um, Donald Trump, when he was infected with the coronavirus, he got a treatment that involves... uh, Monoclonal antibodies to fight off the infection. Those monoclonal antibodies have a relatively long half life and they are still circulating in his bloodstream right now. Yeah. So the vaccine
0: would do nothing, basically. In
1: all likelihood, they would essentially fight off the vaccine. The vaccine would not end up stimulating his immune system. It would be a waste of a dose. Not only would it be a waste of a dose, if you did a Prominent waste of a dose on someone like Donald Trump, it would promote the misunderstandings about how vaccines work. Yeah. So uh, I've heard people asking about Trump getting vaccinated and criticizing him for not getting vaccinated. Yeah. No, he should not get vaccinated. It is the correct thing for him not to get vaccinated right now. In about six months, Yes. And he should be vaccinated. Um, Yeah.
0: And make it very public as
1: well. uh, By then, maybe it will make no difference what he does in public. I I, could hope.
0: I think that he's still going to have a lot of influence in the Republican Party long after he's not president. That could Uh, be. Which is very unfortunate. But there's this press conference in which uh, Kayleigh McEnany was being um, asked about. Trump not taking the vaccine publicly. And her answer was basically, well, he had the disease, he has the antibodies. So it would just be him taking away a vaccine from somebody on the front lines who actually needed it. And look, as much as I despise Kaylee McEnany, as much as she's you know, a liar 95% of the time, I actually think that's a decent defense. Personally,
1: that was essentially the correct answer. Although, um, I'm, I wonder if she understood that the antibodies he has are not because of having had the disease. It's because because of the treatment being treated for the disease. Yeah. A treatment that he got to have because he was president and that isn't available for a lot of other people because they don't have those kinds of connections. Well,
0: broken clock. Yeah. You know, (laughs) um, so let's put aside the politics for a little bit. And I want to specifically focus on the science behind the vaccine. So from a lot of people's understanding as well as my own understanding of how vaccines work. Basically, you are being injected with an either either a weakened version or a an inactive version of a virus in order to in essence teach your immune system what that vi- virus looks like so it produces uh, so it produces the right cells to to attack um, the virus if it comes back into your body. And that's how you get immunized from vaccines. Would you say that that's an accurate description of how vaccines normally work?
1: That is essentially accurate until now. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how because exactly... This new, yeah, how is this different? This new approach to vaccines that we find in both of the vaccines that have been approved at this point, the um, Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, these are a completely different approach. In this case, what you're injecting is not virus. It's not viral proteins. It's not killed virus. What you're injecting is actually um, entirely synthetic messenger RNA that codes for some proteins that are found on the surface of these viruses. The, um, the um, spike protein is one of the main ones, although there's a few others, the N protein. Um, these are the way that your body recognizes the uh, viruses being foreign. And... So it in this case, it ends up being possible to teach your cells to attack the virus without having to run any risk whatsoever of someone actually getting the virus, even a very mild form from a weakened version of it. Um, as I said, it's, it's an entirely new approach. Now, it scientists have been working on this for a little over a decade um and it's been uh it's been slow it's been delayed partly because there wasn't this overwhelming need like the pandemic that we have now that has caused the money gates to open yeah um you know when, when the money gates open, you can accomplish amazing things in scientific research. And we're seeing some amazing things now. Um, but, but let me just back up a little bit and remind you of what RNA is, especially what messenger RNA is so that, um, so that people will be able to, uh, understand what's going on with these shots and why it's so different Um, You probably remember from high school. Yeah, I definitely do. (laughs) (laughs) This is one of the joke, stock joke phrases that I used throughout my career. (laughs) Um, Whenever I said in class, as you remember from high school, I knew perfectly well that nobody remembers (laughs) a damn thing that they learned in high school. Except me. (laughs) Show off. <laughs> little autistic me still remembers every word my biology teacher in high school ever said. Um, anyway, um, so when people think about genetic material, they normally think about DNA, which is found in the nucleus, and it contains our genetic code. And that uh, that DNA is used to make RNA. Um, RNA that carries a message from the uh, nucleus into the uh, cytosol of the cell where it comes upon ribosomes that read the genetic code off the RNA and use it to make proteins. And those proteins end up being the structural basis for um, parts of your cell, but also for viral cell viral particles. Um and also functional parts, the enzymes that uh, regulate metabolism of living things. Um, So viruses, some viruses are made out of DNA. Some viruses are made out of RNA. uh, And this particular virus, um, the uh, coronavirus, is an RNA virus. Um, so when it gets into a cell, it takes over your cellular machinery to make um, proteins to build its own body instead of the things that you normally are building. that's how that's how viruses work. It's one of the reasons that scientists sometimes have these arguments about whether to consider viruses alive or not alive mm. and why the... The phrase live virus versus killed virus is technically not correct because they're not really alive in the first place. Although I'm actually one of those people that comes down on the side that I think viruses should be considered alive. <laughs>
0: I won't replay that whole debate, but it's it's an
1: interesting one. With these viruses taking over your cellular machinery, um, eventually once they... Uh, fill your cell with copies of themselves they go through what's called the lytic cycle which breaks or lyses your cell Um, and then each of these escaped virus particles can create another generation by infecting neighboring cells and all this cell death is what ends up um, making viruses such a problem in an infection so what we're doing with this new approach to uh, vaccines is actually injecting people with messenger RNA that has been coded to make specific viral proteins. Hmm. Um, There's, there aren't the actual virus particles that would normally um, get the genetic material into your cells. Instead, that job is largely done mechanically by the needle itself when it's injecting you. <laughs> uh when that needle enters your arm and it goes down into the muscle layer, it's important that this be in the muscles because you don't you don't want to put it in the skin because the skin will just kind of slough off your your those are relatively short-lived cells anyway. Yeah. But by injecting it into the muscle, you actually end up getting these pieces of RNA. Now, the RNA isn't bare. It's been encapsulated with a, a little um, a lipid capsule that's a little bit like a cell membrane, um, but much smaller. That, uh, those little particles end up getting inside of cells. Some of them get inside cells directly because the needle ends up leaving them there. Some of them may be incorporated into cells because the needle does some damage to some cells. And as those cells heal themselves, they sort of take in that uh, lipid vesicle that contains the messenger RNA. And once that messenger RNA is inside the cell, it drifts over to a ribosome, starts causing the ribosome to read its code and build these proteins. And these proteins then, through the normal process of moving through the endoplasmic reticulum and the Golgi apparatus, eventually end up showing up on the surface of the cell. And because these are foreign proteins, they stimulate the immune cells to recognize them as foreign and start building an immune response. And in particular, um, it helps cause B cells to make antibodies specific to fighting those viral proteins. So when this happens initially in your first dose, you tend to get a fairly small immune response. When it happens in the second dose, because these are both two-shot regimens, um the immune system kind of realizes it one of one of the problems with vaccines always is if a vaccine doesn't make you sick your immune system might not take it seriously and might mount kind of a weak defense yeah. and a weak defense might leave you unprotected if you get exposed to the real thing yeah that's why live virus so-called live virus vaccines or what we should call active virus vaccines are usually more effective than the killed or inactive virus but they're also more brutal uh but they're dangerous people get sick um yeah like the smallpox vaccine the smallpox vaccine was tough when i got it as a kid i was sick for a couple of weeks yeah um most people got sick. Uh, it, at my school, when they gave the smallpox vaccine to everybody, we were all lined up in the hallway at school. And after we got that, they closed the school the next week because, you know, people were going to be so sick that hardly anybody was going to go to school anyway. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: But that's part of what made it so effective because basically your immune system is smart enough to know wow, this hurt this sucked, we don't want this again, we got to make sure that we have a resistance for this in the future. Exactly.
1: So there's another technique that's sometimes used with vaccines. Instead of giving someone a, uh, a virus that is weakened or attenuated, but can still infect, um, sometimes what they'll do is give the inactivated virus, but with some other chemical added to it to sort of make the experience worse for your body so that your immune system takes it more seriously. This is called an adjuvant. So adjuvanted vaccines um, are designed specifically to make the whole experience a little bit more traumatic in a cellular sense so that your body takes it more seriously. Well, it turns out this new approach gives you a very um, strong immune response without being adjuvanted and without having to have a live virus, um, having your cells taken over by this foreign messenger RNA that starts producing these foreign proteins. Um, that's enough to cause, especially when it happens twice because it's a, an initial and then a boost um In that two-shot regimen, um, this is in vaccinology. It's sometimes called prime and then boost. Yeah. So this prime boost approach, uh, people get sick. Most people, when they get that second shot, uh, have fevers and um, headaches and feel bad for a day or sometimes two. But basically what you're saying,
0: though, is you're not actually... Infected with the virus when you are feeling those symptoms, which means number one, you can't spread it to anybody else. And number two, you're not actually in any danger. Like the symptoms you're feeling, they might suck, but they're not necessarily your body being in danger, correct?
1: Right. What you're feeling is your body taking the vaccine very seriously and building an immune response that's going to function very effectively and the effectiveness ratings that we're seeing on these from the from the um, research that's published on it now are like 94 and 95 percent just staggeringly effective it's yeah. this this is amazing and this is not only great for the um for this pandemic this is great for the future too yeah we if a lot of times, our um, flu vaccines are not particularly effective. When when we get a seventy percent effective flu vaccine, we think of that as being pretty good. A lot of times, they're down around fifty or sixty percent effective. <laughs> if we can start having ninety five percent effective flu vaccines by using this approach,
0: well, wow.
1: it's going to revolutionize flu. Yeah. Um, well, you do
0: that. I mean so few people will be able to get the flu that it just won't spread.
1: It's if if we could do this in a widespread way, we might be able to actually make a difference in flu strains. Now I I don't think that we're ever going to completely eliminate flu from the world, hmm. but I think it'll be within the possibility to quickly eliminate individual flu strains. Hmm. Um and really that and and the quick you know, typically it takes about a year and a half from the time you figure out what you expect a flu to be that will be moving around the world till you have a vaccine effective. This new technique is going to let us have vaccines much faster yeah. um you know this this itself was incredibly fast. it went from a genetic sequence to approved vaccine in what was it ten months?
0: Yeah, something like that.
1: Um, yeah, ten months. For so that is amazing itself. But part of that was trying to figure out how to do this. It's going to be possible to go even faster than yeah. that for other vaccines in the future. And so future pandemics we're, we're going to have a new approach to really deal with more effectively and there will be future pandemic possibilities. Yeah. So
0: I think the bottom line that I want people to understand from this whole discussion is uh, when you do get the vaccine, it will probably make you feel kind of crappy for a little bit, but that's okay. That is a part of the, that, that's a part of the process that means it's working.
1: When you feel sick from your second shot, rejoice. <laughs> that is exactly what you want to see.
0: Yeah. So, but the other thing is to say, um, not only does that mean it's working, you're not in danger from that. So I, I also want to make sure that we are reassuring anybody that might be Uh, concerned about that, that might have heard some conspiratorial nonsense about it. Um, I want to reassure people um, from the point of view of an actual scientist here that as soon as you can get the vaccine, you absolutely should get it.
1: And if anybody is looking for more than this very short discussion, (laughs) I realize you guys don't think of this as a short discussion. This one is a long one for you. (laughs) If you want to hear a much more complex, deeper scientific analysis of this, like about two and a half hours at a time, go to a podcast called This Week in Virology. I mentioned it last time I was on. Vincent Racaniello is the host, the main host of it. Um, And they put out several episodes each week during the pandemic. And uh it will it will teach you more about virology if you find this the details of this interesting. Yeah. Do yourself a favor, yeah. actually learn about it, especially learn about it before you spread any bullshit that you <laughs> find on the internet. Yeah. Get the truth first.
0: Yeah. Uh, the last thing that I want us to talk about is the uh, the mutation of oh, the yes. virus. In the UK, there's definitely been a lot of global panic uh, over this possibility of a mutated strain within the UK. I know that when I saw it, I went all Odysseus and I was like, "Okay, who opened up the bag of wins?
1: So could you read that uh, headline that you were? showing me yesterday
0: yeah so uh the, this headline is from the washington post it says british officials identify uh, coronavirus mutations but significance remains unclear so should i be crapping myself right now
1: so that headline is an oxymoron okay it makes no sense whatever and and the reason it makes no sense is because the word mutation is not correct to be using here Um, in the old days when uh before we had uh genetic sequencing um, techniques the way you noticed that there was a difference uh was by seeing a physical trait or a physiological trait that was different that's what a mutation is And um, early on, we figured out that many of those different physical traits called phenotypes uh, actually originate from a genetic difference, a genetic variance. And so people initially started to think, oh, okay, so there's this one-to-one correspondence between the change in phenotype, this mutation, and a genetic variance that causes it. But when genetic research um, progressed and we got the possibility of doing lots and lots of genetic sequencing, what we found out was that there are huge numbers of genetic variants and very few of them ever lead to any actual different physical trait. So what was found was a genetic variant not a mutation now a genetic variant can be a mutation but it isn't necessarily and it's by no means clear that this one even is which the headline actually says it says but significance remains unclear if significance remains unclear then it's not a mutation (laughs) Um, if it was a mutation the significance would be quite clear (laughs) It is possible for a genetic variant to end up being a mutation that could change something important like transmissibility, which is what people are so worried about. Um, But that has not been the case before. There have been other genetic variants that have been found in coronavirus and people initially thought that because they were fairly common in certain uh, countries, that that must mean that they were more easily transmitted. And on further analysis, it has always turned out to simply be founder effects. Okay. Um, the If a person with a particular variant happened to go to a super spreader event, that ended up being a lot of people getting it and those people spread it to others it was purely a stochastic event a chance event it's okay. not because there was some important difference in that genetic variant and you know so maybe this genetic variant will be different than all the others for coronavirus and all the others for that have come up with other viral illnesses but the primary but I, reason why I doubt
0: it the- so the primary reason then why the, the UK has uh, found this and is discussing it is not necessarily because, like, it's unique, it's because the UK is better at finding?
1: This, this it. is very important. It is not a coincidence that the UK is the country in the world that is doing the best job, doing the most genetic sequencing of any country in the world, and that that is where this variant was found. It was found there because they're looking for it there. Yeah, um, Anthony Fauci said yesterday, this variant is almost surely already in the U.S. We haven't seen it because we haven't done enough sequencing, but we're, we're looking for it.
0: So, So I think the thing that people are probably most worried about is, could this variant have any effect on the effectiveness of the vaccine?
1: So let me start by saying it's possible that a variant could have an effect on how a vaccine works. However, it is not possible that this variant will have any effect on these vaccines because these variants don't appear to have any effect on the spike proteins or the N proteins. And those are what these uh, vaccines are based on. So, no, I do not foresee any effect on the currently uh, available approved vaccines. Um, It's something that will have to be looked at on the other vaccines that are coming up. Um, I suspect it won't have any effect on those either. One of the things that you have to keep in mind with uh, genetic variants is the vast majority of genetic variations have no effect on phenotype at all because you can change a lot of um single nucleotides these are in in the field these are often called SNPs, which is an, uh, an acronym snp single nucleotide polymorphism yeah Um, so these single nucleotide polymorphisms means that there's just one nucleotide in the genetic sequence that is different. And the vast majority of the time when that happens, it ends up not actually substituting a different amino acid in the protein that's coded. And so they're totally invisible. Yeah. These variants can be useful for trying to figure out who infected whom. And that can be really important for contact tracing purposes Uh, but in terms of the significance for how sick people get and vaccines no it's it's really not going to be any problem so it's just a sensational headline from people who didn't understand so that's
0: very good news and uh, the the last thing that i want to say on this you know on this entire segment about vaccines is there is finally a light at the end of the tunnel. I mean Oh yeah. <laughs> it has been a shitty year and COVID has been a global catastrophe. And I mean it it's still going to be a slow process to get out of the pandemic. It's I mean, at this point, it kind of feels like you're in the tunnel, both of your legs are broken, and the only way that you can get to that light is by crawling using your arms. But we can see the light. We see a goal. There is an end in sight. And for the first time, there really is legitimate hope.
1: There is. Um, If you've ever actually walked through a long, dark tunnel... um, you you get this analogy. Um, but if you haven't, you you know, there's there's this tunnel I used to like to take my family to in Pawpaw, West Virginia. It's part of the CNO Canal. And the tunnel is long enough and it's curved so that when you're in it, you can't see out the ends. And so when you're walking along that towpath next to the canal, it is total darkness. Hmm. And eventually, you know, you're walking through and you're thinking, oh my God, am I ever going to get my way out of here? You eventually get around the corner enough that you can start to see the uh, other opening that the light is coming through. And once you can see that light coming through, you can tell what direction you're going you still can't see very much, but you can tell what direction you're going. You can tell about how much longer it's going to take. It's an incredible feeling of relief to get to that point. And that's how I feel now. Um, this has been a long, dark tunnel. But this, these vaccines and the, the other ones that should be coming along soon, too, they show us where we're going. They reassure us that there really is an end to this. And it's not that far off. We are still in the tunnel. You still need to wear your masks. You still need to be careful. You still need to isolate. Um, but it's not going to be for
0: And now it's time for one of our more lighthearted segments, Tips for good. So, Michael, why do we do tips for good every week? Well, Nathan, we do tips for good every
2: week because, uh, dude, I totally miss you. (laughs) Dude, I totally miss you. Dude, I totally miss you all the time. (laughs) And also, you know, to make the world a better place. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where you don't miss your dudes so much.
0: (laughs) So, Michael, what is our tip for good this week? So,
2: our uh, tip for good this week is... To uh, do your best to break out of your echo chamber and get the like the best access to the real inf- information on the internet by using private browsing and and incognito browsing. So my brother Joe mentioned this a while ago when we had him on to talk about election fraud and interference. Um, it just kind of offhand, and I thought like it kind of caught my attention as a really good technique to you know break out because we know that you know Google. Facebook, YouTube—they feed you what they think you want to see. So what you spend your most of your time looking at is what they'll try to give you more of. Which means that um, the more you look at political perspectives from a, a certain point of view, the more that point of view will look like the only point of view to you. And the wider apart our society will be in our own isolated echo chambers. So to combat that, get access to the best information and uh, browse privately in incognito mode. And that's
0: tips for good. So up next, we're going to talk a little bit about a proposition of a strategy by progressive Democrats in the House of Representatives that has been proposed by several online leftists. Uh, namely, the, the the first person that seems to be uh, pushing this idea is uh, Jimmy Dore. Now, uh, Jimmy Dore is a leftist commentator and a comedian, and... Let's keep it real. I don't really like him that much. <laughs> I mean, I I I don't know. I I I can't say anything about his motivations. Um and there're a lot of like if you just look at uh, a yes no for policy, for individual policies, I probably agree with him uh more often than I don't. But he kind of has this very edge lord approach of you're either for me one hundred for what I say one hundred percent in both the way that I advocate for it and what I advocate for, or you're a terrible corporate sellout who should go fuck himself. Yeah,
2: which definitely manifests in this particular proposal. Yeah, has. which
0: definitely manifests. So, I mean, there might it, it it's possible that there are some people listening that might be fans of Jimmy Dore. He's not my cup of tea. I don't think his entire uh, strategy is. Effective. Now, that being said, it is always important to look at proposals, look at strategies and look at policies, not based on who came up with it, but based on mm-hmm. the merits of it. So, yeah. you know, let's try to divorce my own personal feelings of, of Jimmy Dore um, away from this for a second before we talk yeah. about it. Uh, but I did want to make it clear that those biases do exist.
2: So, for Nathan. For I me. don't think Raymond and I have any idea who this guy is. <laughs>
1: Probably not. I don't know who this is. Um, yeah. Yeah. However... Uh, Nathan often describes me as a corporate sellout, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) I don't describe you. (laughs) I'm still waiting for my payment from the corporation. Yeah, (laughs) from selling, yeah. I don't call you a corporate sellout. I'd say
2: of the three of us, I'm the only person that has worked his entire career for a corporation. (laughs) 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 Very much selling out. (laughs) So Um,
1: I'm a a small business owner. um, Yeah. With a... Uh, limited liability corporation.
2: <laughs> corporation must be a <laughs> <laughs> Must be. Use the c word. Um, <laughs> so to start off, let's let's talk about what the actual po- like uh, position is that that Jimmy Dore and and some others are are pushing. Um, so basically, the gist is that um, they are pushing uh, progressive House members to uh, withhold their. Uh, vote for Nancy Pelosi as the potential next Speaker of the House, or I should say, you know, re-upping her Speaker of the House tenure, um, uh, in order to force a vote for Medicare for All to the floor of the House. Um, so that's like, that's their push. And, and the advocates, and, and they're pushing that to um, to try to get, uh, to force Democrats in the House to, to stand their ground and take a, a solid position so we can kind of see Uh, who falls where and kind of where the chips fall and to kind of get um, a lot of focus and conversation on this issue. Nathan, do you think that's about a right, the correct uh, way of putting that?
0: Yeah. Also uh, so that you have a very objective place that you can point to in a potential primary So Mm -hmm. that if somebody wants to primary someone out of their seat so that we can replace them with a Democrat who is actually for Medicare for All, they can point to that vote and say, well, this person, like, when the vote came up, this person said they were against Medicare for All. So I'm for Medicare for
1: All. You should vote for me if you want it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So So how did that strategy work for the Freedom Caucus when (laughs) they uh, used it for forcing votes on repeal of Obamacare?
0: Well, that's an interesting point. So and this is where I like there are aspects that I agree with and there are aspects that I disagree with in Jimmy Dore's and, and other other leftist uh, strategy regarding this. First off, I actually do agree that there does need to be a vote in the House of Representatives on Medicare for all, despite the fact that, you know, to his own admission, this entire strategy is not about trying to push for the final vote that's uh, that's you know ultimately going to turn medicare for all into law like he knows that's not going to happen it's not going to yeah. happen in the senate and even if it did joe biden has already said he would veto medicare for all so you know yeah. it,
2: there's no way it gets through two of the three roadblocks
0: yeah. and also like you're not going to get through even if democrats do take control of the senate god forbid if they win both um house seats in or
1: not god Wait, forbid god forbid <laughs> yeah which um, which God are God you willing, praying to? God willing. It.
0: <laughs> uh,
2: um, and, and it's also yeah. not even clear that they would make it through the House, right? Like, yeah, like probably it's not wouldn't. obvious that it could literally go anywhere.
0: Only about half, I believe, only about half of the Democrats in the House have publicly come out in favor of Medicare for all at this point. So, so, anyways, the I do agree that that is a it's good strategy to have there be a vote so we can figure out. A nice, solid, a nice, solid, albeit symbolic gesture to demonstrate who is for us, who is against us on the issue of Medicare for All. I completely agree that, that is, there is value in that. But the question is, should they be leveraging a vote for Speaker in order to force that? So should the Squad be leveraging their vote for Nancy Pelosi as Speaker in order to force there to be a vote mm-hmm. on Medicare for all.
2: And you can probably divorce this from the question of whether we think Nancy Pelosi should be Speaker, right? Like it's yeah. more about whether they should leverage <laughs> <don't>. their vote <laughs> right. too. Yeah, so, I, I
0: would agree.
1: So I h- help me out here. Do they actually have the numbers? So at this point,
0: uh, the Democrats uh, of the the races that have been called by the Associated Press the Democrats have 222 seats. Um, a majority is uh, 218. So if all four members of the squad and one other progressive uh, doesn't vote for Nancy Pelosi, and also, you know, this this is also uh, assuming, assuming that no the, the rest of the House, yeah. the rest of the, the House races that have not been called yet by the Associated Press, because apparently... There's still two house uh, house races that haven't been called. If both of those are called for the Republicans, then yeah, they could actually theoretically block her from becoming
1: Speaker. Theoretically, but they would have to be threatening not just to withhold their vote, but to vote for a Republican.
0: Well, they wouldn't vote for a Republican. The idea is, it wouldn't like the the hope is that it wouldn't come to that because Nancy Pelosi would be like, well, I want to keep my speakership, and (laughs) I'm not going to risk there being a Republican, so. You know, fuck it. She
2: we'll. might call their bluff. She's been at this a long time. Yeah, I'm so,
1: <laughs> so, so I, so you want to vote for a Republican? Let's
0: see how that works for you. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, they w- again, they wouldn't vote for a Republican. Um, they might yeah. vote for like they, they they might vote for someone else who's not uh, who, who's like a more progressive Democrat in the House. But it, but again, the the point is not that they're trying to get there to be a Republican. Um, sure in the house of representatives the idea is try to leverage that vote and to be clear aoc is not necessarily above leveraging her vote and leveraging the squad's vote and the you know other justice democrats votes in the house in order to make sure that change happens in fact there was actually one uh, one person who had tweeted at AOC about this strategy, and she responded by specifically calling out that they are actually using the leadership vote to bargain for other issues, such as committee appointments, and also trying to block the um, yeah. the possibility of a pay-go rule. So, but th- the thing is, those are practical changes. Those are not symbolic gestures. Those are practical Uh, concessions by the democratic establishment to more progressive members leveraging the vote in this particular case would just be a symbolic gesture. And to dad's point about how the freedom caucus would often do that to force votes, to repeal Medicare for all. And I think they did that. What? Like 20 million times. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. Like that was a purely symbolic vote, but when push came to shove, when the Republicans had a majority in the House and a majority in the Senate and a Republican in the White House, it ended up failing. The repeal mm-hmm. actually failed because there were actual stakes. So when there were actual stakes, there were a few Republicans, albeit, you know, generally more moderate Republicans, as moderate as a Republican can be, that voted against it. So the concern here then is, is it really forcing a Democrat to take a position when there's no consequences for it. So like
1: when they're forcing them to fake a position,
0: Yeah, when there's no possibility that a corporate donor is going to call up one of the Democrats that is voting for Medicare for all and say, no, you're not going to vote for this because you know, I'm against Medicare for all.
1: So I mean there, what, what I would argue
2: there are no positive consequences. I would argue there are likely negative consequences. What
1: value is there in trying to force a bunch of politicians to lie to you yeah. about what their position <laughs> is? They do that so enough I, on their own.
0: <laughs> so again, I think there is value in having the vote so we have people on record. But
1: I don't think that this is this it's is valuable. a nuclear option. Yeah. It's save it's it, too much of a nuclear option. Save it for something that really really matters and it can make a difference.
0: Yeah. And you know, so, and the problem that I, that I have right now is the fact that the, the big problem I have right now is the fact that, um, there are, have actually been some internet people on the left that have been pointing to this and saying that AOC is now a sellout. In fact, Mm. Jimmy Dore himself did an entire segment in which he railed against her in which he called her a sellout. And he literally told her to go fuck herself and that she was a fucking liar. And again, Hence, one of the reasons why I'm not a huge fan of Jimmy Dore, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because doing like, doing things
2: and arranging the 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 pieces on the chessboard such that you can actually move the needle on your goal rather than just dying on the hill, like makes perfect sense. That does not make you a sellout.
0: You know, it just when you sell out, that's what that's what does that. I mean, if AOC was like, well. I'm no longer in favor of Medicare for all. I'm going to stop fighting for it. And people that fight it that are fighting for it are a bunch of idiots. Then I'd be like, yeah, of course she's a sellout. But her thing at this point is we need to continue to push on a grassroots level to, uh, number one, get more Democrats that are elected to support Medicare for all. And number two, to make sure that if people are not unwilling to support Medicare for all, then, they should have their ass primaried out of there that like that is how you actually get it passed in the end, you know, pushing for symbolic gestures helps. It absolutely does help. I mean, you know, the, uh, Congress, the democratic Congress passed a $15 an hour minimum wage. They passed, um, the, uh, the equality act, they passed, the decriminalization of marijuana and that's Mm -hmm. important progress towards a potential uh, passage in the Senate. But again, those are symbolic victories. Yeah. So there is value in symbolic victories, but you don't need to go nuclear on an issue that is ultimately not going to be the final push. So no, I don't think. Do we
2: want, do we want is the goal to have us, tell everyone we want Medicare for all, or is it actually to get Medicare for all?
1: Exactly, exactly. So, and you know, in, in the end, this is something I learned as a as a, a chair of the faculty council at my college,
0: hmm.
1: um, which, you know, it's, it's a pretty minor role, but politics is politics. Yeah. And if you want to achieve something, the first thing you need to do is get over worrying about who gets credit for it Mm. and um, start giving your opponents credit for things. Ah, Yeah. That's what, that's what wins them over to your side. Mm. You know, if, if you have a disagreement with somebody and in the end, when you finally um, work out, the compromise or solution or whatever, if you uh, insist on lording your win and taking credit for it, then the next time you come up against that person, they're going to be ready for a fight. Yeah. And if instead you you give your opponent all of the credit for coming up with the compromise give it all to them. You know, the next time you come to their office with an idea, they'll be like, okay, you know, this worked for me last time. Let's see if it works this time. Yeah.
0: And another, another point that I do want to make is one sort of more nuanced take on the division in the left on this particular issue right now is I think we do need to recognize that we can disagree with each other on, Strategy, but we should acknowledge who is ultimately on our side on an issue by issue basis. Yeah. And when it comes to Medicare for all, AOC is on our side. Mm-hmm. That being said, that doesn't mean that we can't criticize her when we disagree with her strategy sure. or even when we disagree with her policies. I mean, so far, there haven't really been a lot of policies that I've disagreed with, but. We can criticize her based on strategies, while also not canceling her, and I yeah. think that that is the big, like black and white thinking problem that comes from, you know, the the Jimmy Dore approach to it. Sure. So, you know, because c- in in this segment, he actually was calling out how several commentators were now turning against her. And he, one of the ones that he named was Kyle Kalinske, who mm-hmm. was another leftist commentator. And after that, Kyle Kalinske basically did a video in which he didn't necessarily directly address Jimmy Dore, but he said, no, I, I still do view AOC as being uh, on the left and being mm. an ally. But he did also make the point, and I agree with this point, that she is a legislator, which means she works for us, which means yeah. that we are True. always within our rights to criticize her. Like we are always within our rights to have critiques. We don't necessarily need to blow her, you know, blow her up or cancel her or anything like sure. that. But call her office, ca- Yeah, <laughs> well, call her office, call her out if you disagree with her. But again, you like don't cut down trees to prevent forest fires,
2: you know? Yeah. My last thought on this is do you want to not have Medicare for all passed and also not pass a $15 minimum wage and and everything else? Or do you want to just not have Medicare for all passed and we can focus on the legislation we can actually get done?
0: And now it's time for one of our favorite segments, As of of the Week. week.
2: (laughs) That worked. That was good.
0: (laughs) It's easier with two people. (laughs) <laughs> so michael who is our asshat this week
2: our asshat yet again um because he just he can't seem to stay off the show he's he's a dershowitz he's an hat, he's he's all of the above uh mr tucker carlson ah from, the uh, ass Fox that News. keeps on hatting.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: for sure um so
0: what did tucker carlson do <laughs> so uh
2: Many, many things. Too, too many <laughs> things. Um, but we actually,
0: we actually had to have an argument as to which particular terrible segment that he did this week we were going to focus on. <laughs> yeah.
2: So this week he um, was uh, casting further doubt. With uh, which I'm sure lives live in the hearts of his uh, consumers um, about the coronavirus vaccine, and he wasn't necessarily saying like he didn't believe in it, but he was saying he was saying that uh, you know it's a matter of personal choice and belief. If you know if you don't get it, it's uh, you know if you're afraid of getting the coronavirus vaccine for no apparent reason, uh, you know that should be up to you. Um, and then he went on to say that that not only is the vaccine potentially dangerous. So Tucker Carlson decided that uh, the point he was going to make on his show this week is, is that, you know, it's not necessarily the vaccines themselves are dangerous. It's not necessarily that, you know, maybe even this vaccine is dangerous, but rather that the fact that everybody's telling us that this vaccine is so safe should make us pretty skeptical of it. And, and specifically, he tried to he tried to argue that because um everybody is trying to push this vaccine we should be skeptical from the point of view of of personal autonomy and freedom so he said quote in this country we control our own bodies they're always telling us that but no suddenly the rules have changed on the question of the corona vaccine our leaders definitely are not pro-choice their view is to do as you're told and don't complain no uncomfortable questions those are not just suggestions they are the rules, and Silicon Valley aims to enforce them. So, so uh, like again, pushing this narrative that people like Bill Gates, who you know, oh. for all of his flaws, probably isn't trying to inject you with something that'll kill you, but they are really behind um, like yeah. the danger of this vaccine. Yeah.
0: And also, I I think it was also Tucker Carlson that was talking about how it's. The thing you should be suspicious of is how excited people are when they get the vaccine. Like these yeah. images of, uh, you know, like I believe Ian McKellen uh, yep. in, in yep. Britain. Like he was super excited when he got it. Uh, a bunch of old older um, healthcare workers I, I saw were like they got it and they were practically cheering. Dude, this pandemic has been fucking terrible. <laughs> yeah. We have yeah. been we've been stuck inside for months. When I get my
1: vaccine, I'm going to be jumping off the fucking walls. So let me just let me just point out that people who are getting it early are people who have been taking care of coronavirus patients in hospitals, watching their patients die. Mm. Um, and yes, they they have been watching these people die. And when they get their vaccine they are moved to tears by the experience it's because they're seeing the light yeah. at the end of the tunnel <laughs> yeah. yeah okay it's emotional for people sure especially those healthcare workers yeah so just i mean it's like he's
0: pretending that he's not the one that's sowing that fear it's yeah, like hey no exactly. no i'm not saying you shouldn't take it i'm just saying Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Some people might think it's dangerous. Yeah. You're the one who's saying that! You're the well, one who's saying that! Well, if
2: everybody, you know, if it's really so safe, why are they trying to convince you so hard that it's so safe? Because
0: fucking idiots <laughs> like you do segments like this.
2: Yeah. It's it's insanely irresponsible. Like, it it blows me away. Even, even being fairly familiar with, with Tucker Carlson's work, it blows me away that he would be so wantonly irresponsible with what he knows is the truth, which is that this is fine.
1: Maybe. And maybe he, this is a, a naive question, but what's in it for him? Why the hell does he do that? I he mean, makes it, a lot of money. Yeah. Well, but like, but to your point, like why, why
2: against vaccines? And I think it's about, I think it's about trying to, uh, just lean into whatever anti-establishment, uh, it, pre-existing beliefs he thinks his audience has and And just whatever that is like his whole thing is based on convincing you that that feeling you have in your gut is the truth and you can trust it 100 as long as it's confirmed by what tucker carlson says
0: and what pisses me off the most is that he is he has screwed us on every conceivable level of this pandemic in the early days he was downplaying it and then he was fighting against lockdowns, then, which caused it to spread even more. Yeah. So then Fighting against mask so, wearing. So then he fought against mask wearing, which made it spread even more. And now we have a vaccine. It's like, okay, well, the, the pandemic that your propaganda helped spread, we finally have a solution. And he's like, oh, no, it could be dangerous. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. As know,
2: dangerous as 330,000 people dead in the United States?
1: I've been reading some history lately and you know, there were people doing the same thing a hundred years ago. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, so this the same resistance, the same kind of demagoguery it was happening in the 1918 flu too. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So
0: a deep and hearty congratulations to Tucker Carlson for being our Ass hat of the week. So, for our last segment,
2: we want to specifically talk about some of the new um, information that's come out about uh, appointments to uh, Biden's cabinet and specifically their uh, positions towards climate change and how this really could be an exciting transition to an administration that not only takes climate change very seriously, but more seriously than any presidential
0: administration before. Yeah. So there are two in particular that we want to focus on. Uh, One, I just have a few words for, uh, and the other one I think we have a little bit more uh, hope for. Uh, The first one would be Pete Buttigieg in the Department of Transportation. Mm. So there are a few things that I just want to get out of the way real quick. I have <laughs> screams into the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> um, I still have a lot of antipathy towards Pete Buttigieg, um, and I have antipathy towards this appointment, not necessarily because he's not qualified for it. Uh, I do think that ultimately he is qualified to do the job. The thing I have antipathy for is, first off, I I don't like his entire approach to politics which is basically as a careerist and not an activist, he is willing to change everything about what he argues for the sake of occupying a specific lane that will get him power in a career. He started out in the presidential election being 100% pro Medicare for all. He was making really good arguments for it. And then he completely turned against it. And he was one of its biggest opponents because he realized, Oh, I guess the progressive lane is already filled I'm going to get more clout in the moderate lane in this particular primary, uh, okay. so I hate that. So and and the other thing was, that I
1: that was the thing that turned me against Buttigieg in the first place. Yeah. However, how how can you call someone that young a careerist? He's absolutely a careerist. Oh, come on. He's
0: absolutely. He's a just getting. Well, started. he ca- all he cares about is where is like advancement uh, in a career. It's personal self-interest and the other problem so the other pr- so hold what on you
1: just what i just heard you say is he's a politician sorry they all are <laughs> he's the type of politician
0: that is willing to take any view and not be an activist on said view he's ta- he, he takes views due to convenience not because he's actually trying to pursue something but the other thing that pisses me off about him is the fact that It was very clear why he got this position. It's because he coordinated with, you know, several different candidates to all drop out on the same night and endorse Joe Biden in order to make sure that they throw the rug out from underneath Bernie Sanders at the last minute and make sure that he doesn't get the nomination. And it was obvious to me the moment Pete Buttigieg did that, that he was going to be in Joe Biden's cabinet and now he is. So the part of that that pisses me off is just I hate the fact that politics is about this, you know, quid pro quo. I will do this and you will award me with power. Um I just I hate that about it. Yeah. All of that being said, he's qualified.
2: Yeah, so so I I definitely agree on the second point that he is like you know we, we just the whole setup itself this quid pro quo setup where um you know somehow the the reins of power are marshaled around based on who can provide what to whom um is so obviously is, a just self-destructive setup this um, is
1: called Politics. Yeah. What but what still this, hearing, I this is called the current system. What I'm hearing Nathan This is say, the current
0: system and it's corrupt and I hate it. What I'm and hearing we shouldn't say, accept
1: it. Nathan say is I am shocked, shocked to see <laughs> gambling going on in this establishment.
0: <laughs> but I'm not getting my winnings because I'm not a part of that. Like the issue
1: is Of course. There's yeah, this is this is what happens.
0: Look, when Bernie Sanders dropped out and endorsed Hillary Clinton in 2016, he did it specifically to get policy concessions. He he had a meeting with her and said, all right, um, so, I want you to sign on to my community to, to my uh, so college could, for all bill. So we could look at that's this. what it was. That's that's why he did it. Pete Buttigieg, it was we could, put me in your cabinet and we I'll could endorse
1: look you. at this from a more positive point of view one of the things that distinguished Buttigieg during the campaign was that he was one of the ones that was willing to put forth good, thoroughly thought-out policies. And Well, not all of them were good policies, but they were so thoroughly thought-out. Not all of them were ones I agreed with. I was very upset by the switch away from Medicare for All. But there were a lot of policies that he was the only one that really thought out clearly um he did his homework he understood the issues he came up with solutions you know that's the kind of person i want to see in there and so is it possible that he did this realizing he couldn't win but made this whole deal as a way of trying to actually get progress on those policies including Policies related to the environment. He Mm -hmm. was, he was really interested in promoting the electrification of the transportation industry, which is something I feel very strongly about. is absolutely necessary and needs to happen much faster than it's happening. Yeah. And as as a Department of Transportation, he'll be in a position to actually do that. I think this is a great
2: and and related to that. And actually, my thought on Nathan's first point is that, okay, so you disliked him as a politician for his waffliness, which I totally get. Um, But that's not something that he can bring to the table here, right? Like, this will be him, similar to, like, being a mayor, is, like, you have to actually go and do things. You're not on the campaign trail, and uh, you're not just grandstanding. Like, he will be in a position where we will not only see... Uh, him actually take these actions and commit to them, but there's good reason to believe that he will commit to the right actions and do them well. So I, I like, am not, I'm not too upset about this. I am, I'm maybe a little bit, uh, you know, upset with the situation, but in general, I think, you know, uh, I would rather have something good uh, soon than wait for, politics to become non self interested which well, I'm gonna be I waiting a very a long win. time.
1: This is a win for the country. I this is a win for the climate. I so
0: my main point was not again, I I, sure. I made I made it clear, you know, when I when I finished to say that all of that being said, I do think he's qualified. The point I was trying to make was that it is clear that the reason why he got this position is specifically because of that quid pro quo uh, approach to politics, which I hate, which I think that should not loves be a part trains. Of however, so however...
1: Is, so this is a brilliant strategy. However... Biden pays off a political debt and gets what we want in terms of policy. Win-win. So on the other side of it, um,
0: there are a lot of environmental policies that he did not sign on for. Now, they did not... They were not necessarily related to transportation, or at least not all of them. Like right. the Green New Deal uh, is related to transportation, but his, primary, to but his primary focus and his policies was about the electrification of transportation. So with that being said, I do think progress can definitely happen with him as the secretary of the Department of Transportation. My issue is I don't like it. I don't like the way he bought himself into the club. So I really hope he does a good job, and I think there's probably a good chance that he will do a decent job. But I, you know, I don't like the reason why he got it.
1: You will eventually be won over. Oh, I, oh you, no, I'd. you will, you <laughs> will eventually like him. I, oh no, I believe no, that. that's not going to happen. Yeah.
2: These are not the droids you are looking for. <laughs> <laughs> like.
0: He would have to do a lot of things to get me to like him again, um, but hopefully, I hope he, he does, does all
2: of them. I hope he does all. I, of I hope those he does things. all of
0: them too. Yeah, no, prove you know what Pete Buttigieg prove me wrong. Please prove me. <laughs> yeah, wrong.
2: we
1: know you're listening. But I, we we felt, know you're listening. We know he's a huge fan of the show. But, but we've got some other interesting appointments. Too. Yes, yeah. the
0: big one that I want to talk about that even a you know cynical asshole like me um, <laughs> is actually very excited about is uh, Jennifer. Graham-holm, um, who has actually been in her appointment has been endorsed by Greenpeace, uh, that actually released a statement saying, uh, quote, Jennifer Granholm has forcefully spoken out against both the Keystone, uh, Excel and the Dakota access pipelines and advocated for shifting investment from oil and gas to renewable energy solutions. That's the kind of leadership the Department of Energy has been sorely missing. Yeah, and
2: and just so to be clear, she's being appointed to the Secretary of Energy, which yeah. covers Secretary of Energy. Uh, yeah, which covers um, energy and environmental issues, as well as managing our U.S. Yeah. Uh, nuclear and, weapons
0: complex. And also to put into perspective, the current Secretary of Energy <laughs> is Rick Perry, which is a guy who doesn't know what the Department of Energy is, but he knows that he wants to abolish it. <laughs> yes. or sell it
1: <laughs> or to sell the fossil it. fuel industry <laughs> so Rick Perry he's the one who um, realized that he needed to start wearing glasses so that people would think yeah. of him as more serious and yes. intellectual that is him
2: <laughs> oh geez yeah but she's going to be a, a very refreshing change of pace as you mentioned she's um, been a champion for the transition to the electric- electrification of um, like, transportation in, in the form of electric vehicles, um, which is which is key. Like, having someone who is in favor of moving towards electric vehicles in charge of the Department of Energy is critical because in order to support the amount of power that you'd need um, to, you know, support, uh, an like, a replacement of gas-powered vehicles with electric, you would need a, a significant amount of investment in our electric grid, which hopefully... Um, with and, her the head of the uh, department of energy we might and get
1: that conversion of the grid into renewable uh generation and and that's something that she's been heavily involved in mm. um so you know when when i was when i was reading the newspaper this morning i i came across an interesting little um tidbit the Rockefeller Foundation is divesting itself out of um, oil.
2: Hmm.
1: So the Rockefeller Foundation, in case any of our listeners don't know, um, uh, J.D. Rockefeller um, built this, trend, this fortune in the first place on oil. Hmm. <laughs> the, the, entire, the entire Rockefeller fortune is about oil. And the foundation now, which is a charitable foundation, um, it is taking all of its investments out of oil. So the age of oil is ending. Even mm-hmm. Rockefeller is acknowledging this. Yeah, um, We need, 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 mm. a Secretary of energy who understands. That we have got to make this transition. We've yeah. got to end the age of oil. That would be
0: like Ronald McDonald becoming a vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> and,
2: and, and I think a huge and, and exciting intersection um, of, of that with kind of the, the economic aspects of Joe Biden's plan to not only, you know, focus on uh, green energy, but also on transitioning our economy as well to a, a green-oriented economy, um, uh, is very much alive with with this nominee. Um, after yeah. her governorship, she uh, um, helped launch the American Jobs Project, which so, brought together leaders from academia and, and industry to, to create so roadmaps for job growth in the energy
1: say sector. say this. Um, she was the former governor of Michigan. True. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not. Not the focus of the kidnapping attempt. Yeah, former, former, previous former. governor. Um, but you know, Michigan. You know, we're we're talking about a an automobile state, manufacturing state. Yeah. Right? Um. So not only does she um, have the right politics, she's got some credibility from her background. Yeah. Right? So even the cynic in me is very, uh, very excited
0: about this appointment. Uh, The endorsement from Greenpeace is definitely a a very glowing endorsement. Uh, Her background in advocating against uh, corporate interests in favor of the environment, like with the Keystone pipeline and the Dakota access pipeline to me that like that makes her an activist, which is the type of, person that I want to be in politics. Yeah. So, this is a good this is a good appointment. I am yeah. very happy with this. And She's
2: a rare combination of an activist and a pragmatist, exactly which is exactly, exactly what we need
0: in that. Position. Someone who can be an activist but also get stuff done. So, you know, the Biden administration, I have no you know, I was I have no illusions that it's going to be the uh like it's going to be the greatest administration of all time and that it's going to be a, you know, shining city on a hill for future administrations with regard to climate change. But it's definitely looking like it is shaping up to be probably with regard to the environment, the most progressive administration of my lifetime, mind you not a lot of competition there for my (laughs) lifetime, but it's still, it's still hopeful and it's especially hopeful that, We are coming from an administration that was run by a guy that honestly said, I don't think the science knows with regard to the environment.
1: And who in his last few weeks is desperately trying to sell as many oil leases in the Alaska National Wildlife Refuge as possible Mm -hmm. before it's too late. Jesus Christ. Uh, um, Which which brings up, uh, were we going to talk about the Department of the Interior?
2: Deb, I think it's Haland, H-A-A-L-A-N-D.
1: Even if she wasn't qualified, the symbolic value mm. of a Native American in charge of the Department of the Interior yeah. is it it's so much different than what we have been having... <laughs>
2: recently and ever in American history. Throughout my
1: entire life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, uh, you know, when it comes to things like the, um, the pipelines, Mm -hmm. the Dakota uh, Dakota access access. pipeline and the, um, yeah, I, I think um, having interior and transportation and energy Uh, these are going to make a difference. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And not just the fact that she, you know, uh, on an identity basis, she is a native American, um, but it, it, it does seem like that identity does translate into a set of experiences that leads her to advocate for the right policies. Mm -hmm. Uh, She has, she does have a very progressive record overall. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of people uh, have definitely been, uh, been praising that particular appointment. So, Mm um so it's definitely it's definitely a step in the right direction and um and i think i think that's also a very good appointment as well
1: so you know i i'm not one who thinks of identity as the way of knowing what a person's policies are going to be sure. i mean look at ben carson you know however identity can have political power yeah mm-hmm. and Um, that identity is going to make it hard for some people to oppose her. Yeah. Mm. And that power can be very useful to get the job done. Yeah. If only Ben Carson had used (laughs) identity (laughs) to help out with uh, HUD.
2: And to finish out the show, we will end as usual with our highlights. So, Nathan, what's your highlight this week?
0: Well, my highlight this week is uh, similar to the highlight that I had the last week that I was on the pod, and that is Cyberpunk 2077. <laughs> um, I just want to talk about it for a quick second. Uh, it was a really great experience for me. Now, there's definitely a lot of just criticism of Cyberpunk right now because it was super buggy. Mm. Uh and a lot of people were pissed off about that. But I had a PC version, and the bugginess was mostly on consoles. And, you know, who gives a shit about them? Um, always looking down their noses at us PC gamers while we are simultaneously looking down our noses at them. Um,
2: <laughs> what's, the co- how, what's even the competition? I mean, you guys have, like, infinitely more keys. so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, but anyways, uh, I actually I actually really enjoyed the game, and I actually just beat it today. Uh, after playing it for two weeks um got a lot of got a lot of mileage out of it it was a good game it was a good it had good gameplay it had a good story um i'm and, glad
2: you uh, put your yeah. week off to good use uh, to
0: that. <laughs> yeah that's actually like while michael was recording last week's pod i was playing cyberpunk and when i listened to the recording of it <laughs> i was playing cyberpunk
1: I have no idea what any of that was. I think think the the only thing I can really say is, uh, okay. Millennial. (laughs) So dad, what was your highlight? Well, um, I, I had a little bit of time this week uh, to get into working on a problem that I had had with my wife's website. Hmm. Um, so I was, uh, doing some website work and trying to get the um the secure um website uh version up and uh, i won't go into any detail on it but there's whenever you deal with these kinds of things there's there are problems that come up and you have to figure out ways to make the damn thing work and Mm -hmm. i just feel really good about finally managing to get that to work so
2: i can absolutely empathize with that i code not in html or css or anything like that but i code every day for my job and the moment when you get past a hard problem the world just opens up it's it just feels good
1: good. you know you you put it so much time into trying to make something work but once it works Mm. it just keeps working yeah And, (laughs) and if you manage to put together something Saves time on mm. an important task, it makes all that time you put into solving the problem just feel worth it. Yeah, so I Michael, what more. about yours?
2: Well, let me summarize it um, the way that Mariah Carey would summarize it um, <laughs> Christmas, the snow's coming <laughs> down. <laughs> I'm just I'm super psyched for Christmas. I'm gonna get to hang out with my brother and his wife and my beautiful nieces and my mom and dad and we'll have Christmas dinner and open presents and do our best to make it seem like the world is not falling down to the walls. Um so yeah, it'll be it'll be a wonderful time. Mm. And with that, thank you so much for listening to the Perspectrum and you'll hear from us again.